0: I want to read a little verse of scripture and then we'll go to some uh, scriptures we'll read overhead. But let me, first of all, I want to thank the Lord for um, what Jesus did for us and who he is. Obviously, we should be grateful. And um, so, Lord, we do. Thank you so much, Lord Jesus, for who you are, uh, what you did for us personally, your personal experience. your suffering, your faith, uh, the character of your ministry, your personality, um, the death you were willing to die, and we're so grateful that you were raised from the dead. Hallelujah. (laughs) Thank you so much, Lord. In um, Acts chapter 8, verse 5, just going to read this one little short passage of Scripture. It says, Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, Came out of many who were possessed and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed, and there was great joy in that city. And the phrase, two phrases in particular touched me there. He preached Christ. So Philip had the ability to preach a person. He didn't preach the seven steps or, um, he didn't necessarily preach a doctrine, but he had the capacity to impart to the Samaritans a person, the Lord Jesus. And the end result was there was great joy in that city. And I believe those two things are um, directly connected, believing the gospel, believing in this person, meeting the real Jesus, and great joy now, there's only one problem. It said the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip. So, <laughs> so there's a connection between hearing about this person, really believing in him, and what he does in your life that releases what the Bible calls a oh, great joy. So that, that's two things I try to do on a regular basis. I try to impart um, a vision or a presence or a a picture of who God really is as opposed to just um, preaching a bunch of stuff. I like to preach a bunch of stuff too, but there's something that happens when you meet the real person that can only happen when you meet the real person of the Lord Jesus, and there's no substitute. There's no church attendance. There's no adherence to a creed. There's really no behavior modification attempt that can replace what happens when you meet the Lord Jesus. Another thing I was thinking about was that uh, over almost five decades in my relationship with the Lord, The more I find out about him, the better I find out that he is. Yeah, I've never, I've been disappointed in myself. I've been disappointed in other people. And I've been disappointed in the Lord because he wouldn't behave. (laughs) He wouldn't do what I wanted him to do. But that's not the same thing as being disappointed in the Lord because he has a habit of knowing a whole lot better about what all happened than we do. It's just uh, sometimes we're smarter than God. Of course we're not, but you get the point. When you disagree with the Lord, you're making a pretty serious mistake. And I'm not the Lord. I'm not talking about disagreeing with me. But nevertheless, he's good. He's better than we know. He's better than we think. He's been very well concealed in many ways by culture, by the church, by Christians, by Christianity, by media. But when the real Jesus, when you meet the real Jesus, there's no one like him. There's no one better. Who could not love him? Who could not love him? Who could not love him if they really knew who he was, what his true motives were, and what he actually could do for a a person's life? So this weekend, we call it Easter. Technically, the Bible calls it Passover. Um, this last week's been celebrated all over the world as a passion week. We talked last week about the triumphal entry. And we saw out of Zechariah chapter 9, a uh, 500-year-old prophecy that clearly articulated and identified Jesus when he entered Jerusalem triumphantly on the back of a donkey. And you should really go back and hear. That, that message I preached last week was so good, I might go back and listen to it again. Come on, that's okay. But um, I'm joking. Well, I'm not. I don't know. Never mind. Next. But there's never been a king like Jesus. There's never been a king like Jesus. Um, we saw in Zechariah it says, for your king comes to you. If that's for me, tell him I'll call him back. Oh, your king comes to you. Well, what king comes to you? What king comes to anybody? If you're a king, everybody comes to the king. You show up at the White House. You show up at the Kremlin. You show up at the throne. You show up at Buckingham Palace. And then if you don't curtsy or bow or acknowledge or do something correctly, you're in, you're in big trouble. Well, Jesus comes to you. That's an amazing understanding. The God of all creation, the King of glory, the one who has no beginning and no end, comes to you. But he comes to you on a a donkey upon whom no one has ever sat before as master of nature, but in pure humility. He didn't come to us in a chariot. He didn't come to us on a noble steed. He didn't come to us with an entourage He came on a donkey in humility with the rabble of Jerusalem basically proclaiming his arrival. There's no king like Jesus. There's no king like Jesus. Yeah, man, what if we discover one day that God's humble? You think about that. God wants to show up. God. God wants to show up how does he do it if you read isaiah 53 i spent 4 hours studying isaiah 53 the first five verses the other day oh i'm not even going to get to the passover i'm afraid but uh when when I'm just struck by how wonderful Jesus is when you really see. It says in Isaiah 53, He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. He's despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He is despised, and we did not esteem him. Now, that's not a picture of Jesus on the cross. That's a picture of Jesus in his humanity. Doing a word study, it goes on to say, for he should grow up before him as a tender plant and a root out of a dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. Um, There was nothing about Jesus' humanity that was particularly appealing to people. He was basically born in a poor family. Um, We never know what really happened to his father, Joseph. Now, being a root out of dry ground, one of the commentators writes this, that depicts the lowly and unattractive character of the small though vigorous beginning of Jesus the expression out of dry ground brings out the miserable character of the external circumstances in the midst of which the birth and growth of the Lord had taken place. The dry ground is the existing state of the enslaved and degraded nation. He was subject to all the conditions inseparable from a nation that had been given up to the power of Rome and was not only enduring all that misery but was in utter ignorance as to its cause. That was Jerusalem or Israel. In a word, that dry ground was the corrupt character of the age in which Jesus grew up. And so when we say, when, they, when, the, when the writer Isaiah wrote, we saw him and there was nothing in his appearance to make us desire him or feel attracted by him, it means he dwelt among them, So that they had him bodily before their eyes, but in his outward appearance there was nothing to attract or delight the senses. He did not look like Brad Pitt. (laughs) There was nothing about him attractive, out of the ordinary. Despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Reading verse 3 again there. The impression produced by Jesus' appearance was rather repulsive. These are the commentators here. They're conservative commentators that are, are masters of the language of Isaiah 53. And to those who measured the great and the noble by a merely worldly standard, He was contemptible. He was despised and forsaken by men, a man of griefs and well acquainted with disease, and like the one from whom men hide their face, despised, and we esteemed him not. He was wanting in men, meaning he had no respectable men with him to support him with their authority. They describe him in in this language as the one who takes the last place. That's Jesus. Jesus in his humanity. He did not have that little golden circled plate on the back of his head and that weird glow in the fingers that did weird. You know, those... That No. He might even have been chubby. Who knows? (laughs) Oh, who knows? You know, we have these images, you know, of who the Lord is. And then we read... Uh, What the prophets foretold. Now, why would I talk this way about the Lord? Because as he moved in the power of the spirit, as he moved, as he was baptized in the Holy Spirit, as he bore the presence of God, He became the most amazingly attractive person there ever was. It is absolutely incredible that anyone could overcome the obstacles Jesus overcame by how he was born, by how he looked, by how unattractive he may have been. But when he, when he was, um, when he moved in that three-year period of his purpose, incredible things happened. I think Jesus was the happiest man on the face of the earth. I think that's the point. I think the point is you don't have to come up uh, with a silver spoon in your mouth to be happy. Happiness and joy come from a secret source how many millionaire football players and millionaire basketball players and millionaire uh, baseball players and, and artists and all these people who've done so well financially have shipwrecked lives. What are they still looking for if they haven't found it in notoriety and finance and in income and in media approval? It's because it's not there. That is um, subterfuge. That is a carrot. That is actually in some ways what the enemy puts in front of people to lead them into destruction. And so you have what, what Isaiah 53 would describe someone I would not like to be like, Honestly. A disadvantaged Hebrew man born under spurious circumstances. But he happened to be the only legitimate person alive in the world. That one man, Jesus, the only truly legitimate Person, And yet born under circumstances where he would be criticized, scorned, looked down on, and yet he had such a relationship with his father, he did not depend on natural circumstances or situations to find his joy or to find his purpose or to find his strength or any of those things because he knew how wonderful his father really was. And none of those things moved him. The Bible even says when he became popular, he wouldn't trust men because he knew what was in the hearts of men. What is that all about? It's about us. It's about opportunities we have to grow, to live, to thrive, to be joyful, to be courageous, to be successful, no matter what yesterday or any other yesterdays were like before today. When you meet the real Jesus and you get to know the Father in the way He can be known. None of that matters. It's it's a lame excuse. Come on. Now, I'm sympathetic to lame excuses because those things form us and shape us. You know what I'm saying? But they're not really lame excuses. But what I'm saying is we have a connection with a person that can absolutely transform our lives. His name is. Is Jesus the Christ? He knows what it is to face insurmountable obstacles and thoroughly and completely overcome. I really, I really, I really like that. Okay, I'm gonna get back off of that. Let's read some scripture together. First of all, go ahead and put the overhead up. In talking about Passover, why don't we stand up and read these verses together? 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Let's read this together. For Christ, our Passover was sacrificed for us. It's 1 Timothy 2, 5, and 6. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. Point in the first one is... As our Passover, he was a sacrifice, and that sacrifice was for us. The second portion we find out he gave himself as what? A ransom. What's a ransom? It's a price paid. It's, it's a redemptive price paid. Matthew 20, these next two verses there. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Let's go to the next one. We'll read this as well. This is the, uh, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Second Corinthians 5. Now, all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and committed to us the word of reconciliation. Okay, you can grab a seat. Such tremendous scripture. In thinking about the Passover, a lot of, I'm sure there's a certain number of us that don't, know enough about the Old Testament understanding what the Passover was all about. And until you have some insight there, you don't fully appreciate who Jesus is. And so when looking at the Passover, I'll give you a little bit of an overview of it. When a family brought a lamb to be sacrificed in their place, they examined it. It's interesting to know the lamb was being examined to see if it was pure because it was a pure sacrifice at Passover that was required. We're going to see why in a minute. But the interesting thing is, Linda Jones wrote this the other day, they didn't examine the family or the people who brought the lamb, they examined the lamb. Now what that means is, it shows you that you don't have to be perfect to get the results of what only a perfect person could obtain in the context of this Passover. and We're going to look at that in a minute. Passover commemorates God's deliverance of Israel from slavery in Egypt. You may remember the story we've talked about this in the past. Jacob and his sons left the promised land to live with Joseph in Egypt during a time of great famine. God spared the lives of the family. They grew and prospered until a ruling Pharaoh who did not know Joseph enslaved them for 400 years. And so Israel was enslaved longer than the United States has been a nation, just to put that in context, 400 years. We basically track our beginning 1776, although we go back to 16. I think the lost colony was 1611, but basically as a nation, 1776, 400 years. They grew to be about 2 million people. And the the enslavement was a horrible experience. Probably worked seven days a week. Um, Obviously taken great advantage of. And God heard their cries, and so he authorized Moses to go to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh he had to release the Hebrews. But Pharaoh refused to do it for purely selfish reasons. The two million Hebrew slaves were free labor, and basically the backbone of his whole economy. So he wasn't going to let them go. In response, God sent ten increasingly dreadful plagues to Egypt to encourage Pharaoh ...to let them go. Darkness, locust, hail, boils, diseased livestock, flies, lice, frogs, <laughs> waters became blood. That was a bad time to live in Egypt. Yeah, you can laugh right there if you want to. The tenth plague involved a death angel that had authority to kill the firstborn of every house... Now, if you look at this from Egypt's perspective, it's pretty frightening to be on God's bad side, maybe. But if you look from God's perspective, he has a tribe of people from whom is to come the Savior of all humanity. And I believe the Savior even of people who died before Jesus came, because the Bible tells us he went and preached to the spirits in chains You know, so there's something interesting about all that. But God would stop at nothing to protect the lineage of the Messiah and in the process demonstrate historically the reality of redemption. You know, the whole Old Testament is really about one person, the Lord Jesus. If you can read it right, you see Jesus in every book of the Old Testament. So God tells Moses, go to Pharaoh, tell him, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no. Here come the plagues. And the last one was the death angel. God instructed Moses that each Hebrew house should choose a spotless lamb, kill it, wipe its blood over the doorpost of the house. There were several other things, the way they, they actually had a meal with... um They ate the lamb and a number number of things they did. I'm not going to get into, but it says in Exodus 12, 13, now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will do what? Pass over you. So that's the idea of the Passover. The idea of the Passover is connected to deliverance from a wicked tyrant that comes through being protected in a time of danger, being protected by having wiped the blood of a slaughtered, spotless lamb over the doorpost of your house so that death angel passes over you. Well, he passed over every single house who followed those instructions, but the houses who didn't follow the instructions, the oldest male... Man and animal died that night. Every firstborn animal and son died that night in every household in Egypt, but he passed over the households of all the Israelites when he saw the blood of the lamb. And finally, under this pressure, Pharaoh let God's people go. Now, let's make some application. Jesus is our Passover lamb. Our future Passover, the exact uh, on a future Passover, rather, the exact same calendar day of the Hebrew year, every year, a greater Lamb of God. In one particular day, a greater lamb of God will be slain on Israel's behalf. His blood applied to the doorpost of human hearts anywhere and every hair, everywhere would likewise cover whosoever from death. That's the idea. The idea in becoming a believer in Jesus is you receive his sacrifice as the Lamb of God. You, you, by faith in Jesus, you acknowledge you need that blood, that sacrifice, that payment, that ransom to bring you into the goodness of God and into the power of God. God loves you no matter what. But there is this process you need to go through so he can demonstrate that love through the death of his own son. Now, it's important to notice and compare the facts of Jesus' life during the Passion Week with the actual Hebrew religious practices of Passover week. The Passover lamb was always selected on a specific day, every Passover. Exodus 12 instructs us that the Passover lamb is to be chosen on the 10th day of the first month. By the time of Jesus, only lambs from Bethlehem were considered eligible to serve as Passover lambs. So the lamb born in Bethlehem was chosen and brought into Jerusalem from the east down the Mount of Olives. How many of you remember in the um, triumphal entry, Jesus came down the Mount of Olives, entered the city through the Sheep Gate. Jesus himself came down the Mount of Olives on this very same singular day, entered in through the Sheep Gate. On the tenth day of the first month, Jesus, the Lamb born in Bethlehem, came down the Mount of Olives. As he entered, the people waved palm branches and shouted, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Save us, Son of David. By mass acclamation, Jesus is designated as Israel's Messiah. The crowds had chosen their Passover Lamb. So the exact time the priests were choosing a lamb, the exact time they were bringing that lamb down the Mount of Olives, up through the Sheep Gate, up to the temple, Jesus himself came that very same way. There are probably a hundred different characteristics of the life of Jesus that have been clearly articulated through Messianic scriptures and different prophecies like this. Okay, the next thing they did, In Passover, the priest, the lamb had to be examined. The Old Testament instructed that the lamb they chose had to be carefully examined for blemishes. Only a perfect, spotless, unblemished lamb would suffice for the Passover. After arriving in Jerusalem, Jesus went to the temple to teach. While there, Pharisees, Sadducees, Herodians, and the teachers of the law grilled Jesus with difficult questions trying to trap him. Essentially, they were looking for any blemish that might disqualify him as Messiah, but no one could find fault with him. Why? He was without blemish. So the crowds had chosen their Passover lamb in Jesus. When he was tested and inspected and examined, he was found to be without blemish. As part of the Passover celebration, all leaven was to be cast out of every Israelite home. Leaven speaks of impurity. Each mother took a candle and searched out impurity, removing it from her house. This regulation is still observed today. Passover is a time to cleanse every house. Every observant Jewish family carefully cleans their house before Passover. Every trace of impurity is removed. After Jesus arrived in Jerusalem, he entered the temple... And cast out the money changers. This is probably the single most significant thing that got him killed. He was following the biblical instruction to prepare for Passover by cleansing his father's house. The next thing is the lamb is taken to the altar for public display. On the morning of the 14th day of the first month at 9 a.m., the priests lead the lamb out, bind him to the altar, putting him on public display for everyone to see. On the morning of the 14th day of the first month, When all had been fulfilled, Jesus was led out to Calvary at 9 a.m. At the same time the lamb was being slain, Jesus being bound to the cross just like that lamb was. Jesus was nailed to the cross, put on public display at Calvary. Everything that happened to him during Passover week fulfilled and paralleled a celebration called the Passover that was instituted many, many years before. Well, the lamb was slain at a specific time. At exactly 3 p.m., the high priest ascended the altar. As another priest blew a shofar on the temple wall, the high priest cuts the throat of the sacrificial lamb and declares it is finished. At 3 p.m. on that high holy day, at the moment the Passover lamb was killed, Jesus cried with a loud voice, What? It is finished. He gave up his spirit. In Greek, it is finished means the debt has been paid in full. I was thinking about um, a couple of Jesus' parables. One of them says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in the field which a man found and hid, and for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. You know, we are that treasure. You can say the field's the world. In a sense, we're hidden. How many of you feel hidden? Feel like you're true Personalities never really been released or come out. I think that's a picture there, but the kingdom of heaven is like this man who discovers what his heart loves. That's what a treasure is. And he is so happy he's found it, he is willing to buy the field by selling everything that he has. You know, I think when you look at the sufferings of Jesus, when you look at what he really did, he gave everything he had. The Father gave everything he had to buy us the treasure. He saw us as a treasure. But you know, there's something else here. I think in a way, the Lord Jesus needs to become a treasure to us. And I think that treasure of who the Lord is has been very well hidden. There's so many ways it can be hidden. I think tradition hides who Jesus really is. I think there are things that we do that hide him. Our being offended can blind us to who he is. You know, being offended by Christians, being offended by Christianity, being offended by the church, being offended by people that you trust. Offense has a terrible power. It has a terrible ability to to cause us to not see accurately the goodness of God, some of us um, the Lord has been hidden because the only kind of Father we may have known was not maybe not a good example of what the Father is really like. I think the Lord can be hidden from us through our own disappointment. I know from resentment all of those things are have the capacity to to blind us to who God really is, I was reading about these verses and um, some people. The next parable: the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, and when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. I think that's another picture of it. Can be a picture of us, but it can be a picture picture of the Lord. Um, we we can't purchase salvation. I mean, the grace of God is a free gift. It really is. But believing in Jesus at the level he calls us to can be quite expensive. I was talking earlier about my great-great-aunt. Um, her best friend was her brother. And her brother died at the Battle of Spotsylvania Courthouse during the Civil War. And her brother was devout. He was fighting on the wrong side of the Civil War, I'm, as far as I'm concerned, but he was devout. And my aunt, her name was Mary Galloway, she knew that if she didn't meet Jesus, she would never see her brother again. And so she gave her life to the Lord and became really an amazing believer in Jesus. She received that free gift. And then she felt a call to missions. You know, this is 1860 missions. It's not like 2016 missions where you fly on a 747 and you complain about the food and whatever. I mean, that's me on a mission trip. I'm not telling who you are. <laughs> but she decided she was going to serve the Lord with all her heart, so she, her first foreign mission field was Texas, was before Texas was a state. And after she came back from Texas as a Presbyterian, no, not a, pre, a social reform Presbyterian, there's a little bit of difference. But she convinced... Uh, her church, really her denomination, to send her as the first missionary they ever sent. And so as an unmarried young lady, she went with a team of medical missionaries to Egypt in 1869, I think it was. And I was reading a book. There's this book about her, and when I'm, I'm thinking about this whole thing about the price Jesus paid, but then what price do we ever pay? We don't pay for salvation, but he may ask us to do things that can cost us a lot, but we'll only do them if we see him for who he is, but it still costs something. And so she, um, she said the day she left home, she wrote, She really a very articulate writer, The day she left home, she knew she's never coming back. So she leaves her home in due west, South Carolina, travels to Philadelphia, they go to New York, they get on a boat. In February, they have a terrible trip overseas. People are throwing up for 11 days. I mean, just the stuff they went through. When she gets to Egypt, she develops a relationship with one of the doctors, and she gets married. So she has three children. And when I was reading about her life and really the sacrifices she made, her father died while she was gone. So the last time she saw her dad, it was when she left home to go on this mission field. She had three children. She buried one of her children in Egypt. And then after being there for six years, she died. And the whole time she was there, she battled an opthoma, uh, uh, an eye disease. Her eyes would swell up and, Her kids were sick. And she did that. She did that for six years until until she died. Why would anybody do something like that? Why would anybody do something like that? Well, she did it because she found someone worth doing it for. She discovered how good the Lord was. And she was willing, I think she was willing to pay that price. And she did. Um, It was, it was interesting. I was talking to an Egyptian friend of mine the other night and he was telling me a little bit about his history. And I hadn't thought about my aunt in, in a long time. Um, But he, he, he was saying he grew up in the Coptic church, but they came Presbyterians and the Coptic church. They were nominal Christians. They weren't really serving Jesus. They were nominal Christians but they ran into these Presbyterians. His forefathers ran into these Presbyterians in Egypt. And it changed their lives. And when I told him about my aunt, he just about broke down and wept because people like her and the sacrifice they gave changed the life of his entire his entire family in Egypt. Why do people... A lot of people do things like that. You can only do it out of love, honestly. You can only do it not out of pressure. I think you you have to do it because you've seen how good Jesus really is. You look at the whole Passover. I, every Every year about this time, sometimes... Other times too, I'll read through the Gospels and see the particulars about the sufferings of Jesus. How they would st- they they lied about him. How many of you've been lied about and you couldn't really defend yourself? How does that make you feel? Lied about him. They made fun of him. They spit on him. How many of you been spit on? Nothing fun about. I mean they blindfolded him and slapped him and would say, prophesy to us, who hit you? I watched The Passion of the Christ just the other day too and I watched the scourging. I'd actually had a vision of Jesus being scourged. Um, It happened on John Mark's 22nd birthday. It's a strange story, but that's how I remember it. That night of his 22nd birthday, I had this vision of Jesus being scourged and I was so disturbed, what I saw in that vision so disturbed me, I could not think straight for two days from what I saw and see the truth of it is he didn't do that for humanity. he didn 't get the flesh torn off of his back for humanity he He wasn 't beaten. Beyond recognition for humanity, for the human race. He wasn't nailed to the cross and murdered naked in front of his friends and family for the human race. He did it for you. You see, he did it for you. You know, when you stop generalizing and you make this specific, and you see that what he did was directly related to how he felt about you, he did that for you. You don't go to a king, the king has come unto you. What kind of king? An arrogant king? A ruthless king? A vile king? uncaring king? No. One that comes in humility, who comes and allows himself to be shamed beyond belief and to suffer beyond belief. This cosmic suffering, and I use that word cosmic because it was, it was something surreal. It was something beyond human suffering. When he bore in his body the sins and the sicknesses of humanity, the depravities he encountered and experienced. It wasn't a theoretical thing. It was an experiential thing he went through. If you've ever had a panic attack, Jesus had panic attacks. If you've ever been tempted beyond your capacity to stay righteous, he felt that feeling. He went through that. He bore the consequences, the feeling, the judgments the condemnation, the guilt, the shame, the humiliation, the resentment, the frustration, all of those things he experienced in a way that if we understood, we would no longer yield or give in to those things ourselves. If we fully comprehended what he did for us, he didn't do it for humanity. He did it for you. He did it for Matt. He did it for KC. He did it for John. He, you know, God so loved me, me. Never mind you. You're on your own. Me. What about me? <coughs> Excuse me. But what about you? What about you? Do you hear this? Galatians two twenty. In the in the book of Galatians, it says Paul didn't preach. He, he set forth Christ crucified among them. He didn't just tell them it happened. He had a way of describing it in a way that affected the lives and the hearts and the emotions and the will of the people he spoke to. Because it's a real event, not just some um, classic episode from years gone by, but a real event that has eternal consequences for everyone who hears that story. So what do you do? The littlest possible thing initially, you believe that story. How many of you believe that story? I believe that story. I believe in Jesus. The real Jesus, the Bible Jesus. I would like to be good at altar calls, but I'm just not. I've tried to do them for years. I'm not that successful. I don't know, it might not be what I'm supposed to do, but if you don't know the Jesus I'm talking about, you can. It's it's beginning is as easy as falling off a slippery log in a rainstorm. You believe. Now, to believe, you may have to repent. You may have to change your mind. You may have to change your mind about whatever keeps you from believing. But the Bible told us God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. And the Apostle Paul's... um, me, or his modus operandi, how he went about it was, he says, it is though Christ is in me, imploring, imploring, begging, if you will, you be reconciled to him. It's your choice. Jesus has to do nothing more for you to be reconciled to God. Jesus has to do nothing more for you to experience complete and total forgiveness instantaneously. The the um, imploring of heaven is you be reconciled. Jesus didn't come to change God's mind about humanity. He came to change humanity's mind about God because God is good. I'll just do this. If there's anyone here today, we're not going to embarrass you. But if you've never received Jesus and what I've said has touched you, and you want to, why don't you raise your hand? Just stick your hand up in the air. Because it's important to acknowledge. Is anyone here that wants to do that? Well, thank God. I love Jesus just letting you know how good he is. We do have ministry teams. I don't know if John Mark or Andy, if you want to you have something you want to close with today? But if you'd like prayer about anything, if you will after the service, come right over here to this corner of the room. We'll be glad to have a team pray for you. Everybody good? He's risen. He's risen indeed. Amen, amen. Have a great weekend. God bless you folks.